Welcome to The Cut Presents In Her Shoes. I'm Lindsay Peoples, Editor-in-Chief of The Cut. I'm taking over this feed and talking to women that we at The Cut love and admire or just find interesting. We'll explore how they found their path, what got in their way, and how they think about bringing others along now that they've arrived. Many leaders in our world see merging sustainability and a successful business as a challenge. But Leah Thomas, aka Green Girl Leah, has made protecting the planet and the vulnerable communities that live on it a cornerstone of her success. We sat down with her just ahead of Earth Day to discuss her new book, Harnessing Social Media as a Tool for Good, and how she's built a career on making the world a little more equal for everyone and a little nicer to our home planet. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Hi. Hi, Lindsay. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. This is so cool. Um, okay. We are talking a lot about sustainability on The Cut this month. I mean, it's something that we talk about all the time and something that we cover, but it's always something that we feel like we are trying to make it new and fresh and still keep people engaged. And I'm sure this is something that you also are always talking about because it does feel like I don't know. I think the gist that I get from a lot of our readers is that it feels like sustainability is such a huge problem and it feels like what can we actually do? Like, can we actually do anything to to make changes in our lives? And maybe it's up to the big corporations, maybe, you know, maybe it's up to powers that be. And so I think a lot of it throughout this conversation, wanting to, you know, encourage people, but also I think shed some light on things that people can do and spaces that they haven't really understood. And so I wanted to start by asking, what does it mean to you to be an intersectional and environmentalist? And like, how how do you see that playing out in the world and, and with what you do? Yeah, I think something that was really frustrating to me, I've dabbled in like sustainable apparel, working at Patagonia, I've been like a park ranger for a little bit, environmental nonprofits, etc. And in most of these spaces, especially the ones that were kind of primarily white spaces, there was a lack of inclusion of diverse voices or even what sustainability can kind of mean to different groups of people. And unfortunately, people of color are the most impacted by the climate crisis and environmental injustice right now. So it really doesn't make a lot of sense to leave out the most vulnerable populations um, when we're talking about these crises that we're facing. So I think with intersectional environmentalism, it's kind of an approach to environmentalism that doesn't let these oversights continue of not considering who is most impacted by the climate crisis, because a lot of people of color, you know, are the bearers of their own solutions and they have solutions for the problems that they're facing. They just need amplification and resources and things like that. 
Um, so really, it's just a fancy way of saying you're an environmentalist that cares about people and the planet at the same time, which shouldn't be controversial, but sometimes, <laughs> like, it is. Yeah. Was there a specific moment for you where you were really focused on sustainability and then felt like there wasn't that connection between environmentalism and social justice that made you bring this to light more in your own life? Yeah, there's been so many, but I think something that really sticks out to me, I went to a protest about endangered salmon and I was like taking it to the streets for the salmon. And I remember not too long after during the summer of 2020, a lot of the same people that I had went to this protest with um, that worked in corporate sustainability or all those sorts of things during the Black Lives Matter movement were saying, you know, I don't get what this really has to do with environmentalism. And then throughout my career, there were other moments where even when we're talking about sustainable fashion, just the way that we're talking about garment workers or things like that, making sure, you know, it's rooted in equity and inclusion or just different iterations of people saying racial justice is all the way over here and environmentalism is all the way over here. And I think during the summer, of 2020, I just couldn't take it anymore. Like I had protested for endangered salmon, the smallest of endangered species. Like we need to advocate for endangered humans and endangered black lives in the context of whatever environmentalism is happening. Because without that, I just don't see why I would lend myself to that sort of cause. Like I just couldn't do it anymore. How do you feel like obviously in being part of such big movements has nature helped you in any way? Does it feel healing? Like, what are the things that I think, obviously, this is really hard work, but I want to hear about the good and things that it's brought you that are positive in your life as well. A really large motivating factor of why I do this work, like it's not just motivated by environmental injustice and how it impacts the Black community or trauma surrounding environmental hazards. A lot of it is also the joy and the Black joy that I've been able to find in nature as a healing space during all of these terrible injustices that are happening and just kind of reshaping and reframing what it means to be an environmentalist. It doesn't mean that I have to summit a mountain, even those experiences of like sitting on a porch with my grandmother or walks around, you know, the block or things like that. I'm still connecting with nature and that makes me feel so joyful. So I feel like a lot of my work is also rooted in like wanting other people to have the same access to be able to go to a park, breathe in healthy air, drink clean water so they can experience true joy and liberation at the same time. We kind of touched on this, but I wanted to more specifically ask, I mean, obviously there's been there, we had, you know, such a social racial reckoning the past couple of years. And I think this past January, I did an issue for New York Magazine about how it's been 10 years since Trayvon Martin was murdered and 10 years of, of Black Lives Matter. And I was wondering for you specifically now, I think we're just life is just in a, a very weird space of pandemic and there's so much happening overseas. And there's, I feel like there's so many issues that people feel like th they're burnt out by it, honestly, and don't really know what to say and what to speak up for. But specifically with BLM and environmentalism, where do you think the link is still missing? And like, what do you, what do you want people to understand or speak mm. up more about? I think the number one thing is just the right for people to breathe um, or what I consider to be 
basic environmental human rights that everyone needs. So having clean air, clean water, things like that. Um, so the things that concern me is that about 71% of African Americans in the United States live in a county that's in violation or frequently violates um, federal air quality standards. So that's 71% of black folks are living in conditions that are kind of promoting respiratory illnesses and things like that. There's also lack of tree cover in a lot of black and brown neighborhoods and communities. And it's not just for aesthetics, you know, I like trees, but it's also we need them to purify the air and to offer shade because we're seeing a lot of um, black and brown communities having increased temperatures and it's leading to negative health impacts like heat stroke, etc. So I think we need to see some of this uh, like more comprehensive solutions to the climate crisis that factor in how black and brown communities are specifically being impacted right now and to have that be elevated a little bit more because people deserve the right to breathe in every sense of that meaning. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, I think being having a platform and being able to talk about these things is wonderful, but I'm also curious of how it's been for you to, you know, be in the public spotlight talking about these things so young and obviously social media is such a, a minefield. What has that experience been like for you? Um, it's been interesting, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I always use the word interesting when I don't know what to say. I feel like it's a, like a code switching term for like, you know, it's, it's been, it hasn't been great, you know, but it's been great at times too. Like sometimes it is so amazing. And I think the best part is connecting with other students and kind of seeing myself in them and just, I don't know, coming in and saying, your people have always been included in environmental history, like go forth with empowerment. So like that feels good because that's what I wanted when I was an environmental student. But also there's a lot of discrediting of the work that I do and so many people do. And I don't know if that's a combination of like racism and sexism, etc. But people just saying like, well, we already have environmental justice. Like, why do we need to incorporate intersectional theory into environmentalism? It's like, why not? Why are we um, not wanting to include the contributions of black women in the context of what we do? Um and right now, actually, there's someone, some students started a, a Wikipedia page for intersectional environmentalism. And there's professors going back and forth in the comments saying all the reasons why that page should be merged with environmental justice and that intersectional environmentalism isn't real. And it's like, this is just so ridiculous like I that I have to that I have to do this in the first place or two things can exist at the exact same time um, but that used to upset me a lot more than it does now now I learned to laugh at those things a little bit but it is frustrating or there's a lot of white supremacy flowing through the environmental movement which makes complete sense because people who created national parks basically just uh, displaced thousands of indigenous peoples and took their land from them. So the conservation movement is deeply rooted in white supremacy and that pops up every now and again. And it's kind of hard. It's, it's hard to deal with. I'll say that for sure. Yeah. I mean, how, how did, how's your relationship changed with social media over time? I mean, I'm, I, I'm always personally curious about this because I think, um, like I've had to give myself boundaries of like, okay, I'm not on it on the weekends or like I, delete it off my phone for a certain amount of time if I just feel like I need to. Um, and it's such a weird phenomenon of our time. You know, you can't ask like 
an aunt, like, so what did you do when, you know, like it, it just feels, feels like another world in that sense. And so I'm always curious of how your relationship has changed and having a platform and how you've been able to balance it. Yeah, I think one of the things is having like two spaces. There's technically three. One is a, you know, personal um, Instagram that exists out there. Um, but having two specific spaces. So one that's for me, Green Girl Leah. So my personal blog and telling people this is just my personal blog. So it's not purely for education. Sometimes it's just me living life, you know, whatnot. And then I created a completely separate platform and nonprofit that is specific to education day in and day out with a team of like 10 people. And I think I was listening to a talk by Adrienne Marie Brown, where she was saying that it's so important to define the intention of a space, um, just so you understand and everybody else understands. So I've been doing that for my social media platforms. Like my nonprofit is for education. This is our mission. This is what we talk about. My personal platform is not for continuous education. I can opt into that if I want to. I can opt out. I'm going to turn off the like counter on my photos and things like that because I really just don't want to see. I don't care. Like I feel like it's not healthy for me. Um, and yeah, I've just been trying to create more boundaries and also sharing a bit less. I used to be very reactive on my personal Instagram page. Like if I would fly, people would get mad and send me DMs. Like, how can you be an environmentalist if you fly? Or I saw you said you ate eggs one day. Like you, you there's so many comments. And I honestly, like, I just don't look anymore. Or if I see it, I delete it. And I feel like that's helped me a lot. I mean, how do you deal with that policing, though? Because I think that people expect you when you have a platform to, if you say you're this, then you do all of these things. How have you figured out what is right for you, whether that be in what you eat or what you consume or how you travel? How have you been able to, to figure that out for yourself? Yeah, I think people are also especially really hard on people of color in the environmental space because there's a lot of like white sustainable influencers and they are literally doing clothing hauls every day like yes the clothing is sustainable and they're getting it for free but it's not sustainable to do a clothing That's haul what I'm saying. so i'm like <laughs> i'm like y'all are not critiquing their outfits of the day like all those sorts of things or even you know celebrities who i really like they're granted that duality like Leonardo DiCaprio, shout out to him. He's done, you know, a lot of great environmental work, but people are more willing with celebrities to say, oh, we can hold these two things. And maybe it's because they're wealthy at the same time. Like they do great things for the environment, but it's fine if they fly on a private jet or if they do some, some of these things. But when it comes to kind of smaller content creators, I think it's blurred in some ways because we're not like famous, famous. We're just like, you know, bloggers. So maybe people are like, well, I want you to represent me. So they're kind of projecting certain things onto us. Um, but long story short, I feel like there is accountability at times and I try to search for it. So if I'm getting a ton of comments that are saying, hey, this partnership didn't sit well with me. Can you explain this? Or you're flying a lot. Can you talk to me about how you do this? Sometimes I think about it and, you know, I might say, hey, I'm not promoting like air travel or anything like that. But seeing more of the world is how I feel like I'm able to connect better with nature and experience self-care. Um, so I just, yeah, I try to hold space for valid accountability, but then also just know that I can't please everyone. And sometimes people are projecting. And I think it's kind of sad because it's because of a lack of representation. Oftentimes, like people place their expectations on like a collective of a few people 
And I want to be able to represent as many people as possible, but I know that's impossible. And that's why I think the intersectional environmental movement is growing. And if people want someone who lives in a tiny home, lives out of a mason jar, it's not me, but I know some people (laughs) they can follow. I love that. What do you hope to see social media's role in climate justice really become? Because I think obviously, you know, we've talked about your personal experiences with social media and navigating that. But I think as a whole, like social media obviously is such a powerful tool. What would you want to see from different creators and any movements or anything to really push the idea that climate justice should be something that people are talking about more? One thing that's kind of random before I add to that is that um, so Pinterest yesterday, I know they just released like a climate misinformation policy, which I thought was really cool. And I think that other social media platforms should have similar things. So like if people are spreading conspiracy theories or climate misinformation or even information about like social injustice, that is incorrect. I'm sure there's a ton on Facebook. There's so much. There's so many like diagrams with like the earth and it's like the earth is okay. And I'm like, this is not okay. <laughs> so we're not, we're not all good. Um, so I do want to see like social media platforms start to understand that so many people, whether they intended for it or not, are coming to social media for education. Um, and I believe that ultimately this is a good thing, but without some sort of like fact checking things in place, it can be really harmful. But then I also, yeah, I think seeing and understanding the validity that a lot of people are just not, you know, reading these long research papers about climate change aren't accessible. And if content creators or academic institutions or news sources, whatever, could summarize that for the everyday person and meet them where they're at, I think the possibilities of utilizing social media for education are endless. And I'm really excited to see the way that this develops. I think during the summer of 2020, especially, people kind of called it this infographic explosion because there was just so much, you know, need for knowledge. So I'm excited to see what happens, even seeing educators use some of my nonprofits like Instagram posts in their classrooms to relate to their students. That makes me so happy. But the platforms themselves have an obligation to fact check what they're posting because it's so easy to post incorrect information online. So lots of thoughts, lots of thoughts there. Yeah, no, that's I think that's an amazing idea. And I mean, that would be really helpful, I think, in so, so many ways, because I can't tell you how many times I'm talking to someone. I'm like, where did you find that? Who send me the link? <laughs> Who sent that? Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So earlier in our conversation, you were saying you worked for Patagonia and you've done a lot of jobs. Like what gave you the confidence to to leave Patagonia in favor of like starting your own organization? And I think, I mean, especially as women of color, I think it I don't think people understand how hard it is to, to leave a situation that people publicly may think is 
very wonderful or one thing in the other. And so I wanted to to discuss how you felt about that and making that decision for yourself. Looking back, it was one of the most difficult and then also kind of easiest decisions I've made, like in different ways, because um, I guess at the time, like I was working at kind of the sustainable manufacturing utopia that so many people look up to. And I had a great experience, especially because I got to work with some of the Patagonia OGs, like I was an assistant. So I got to like work with the founders, like best friend and nephew. So I learned so much from them. Um, But then I think it was really important for me to be in my dream space as one of the only black women and realize that while this is a dream space for many, I want to create the dream space for me and other people who look like me. And I remember people saying, well, what about healthcare? Like, what about, you know, your laptop, your company laptop? Like, what about all these sorts of things? And I was like, what about my dignity? Like, I'm not going to feel okay. And I, you know, I love Patagonia, but I will not feel okay if my work is not directly tied to the liberation of black folks, like in the context of environmentalism. And they might be getting there at some point and I could help in that area, but I would rather just create a safe space for myself and so many other people. That sounds really fun. So, you know, everybody was on unemployment at the time and I was too. So I just said, you know what, I'm just going to try this out, see how it goes and try to build something with my friends. And I'm so glad that I did. But when there's something in your heart that's telling you to do something, whether it's intuition, I don't know what it is, but it was saying like, jump, it's time, it's time, it's time. So I just listen. I try to listen to whatever that intuition is. And I did. And I'm really glad that I did. And it's it's really scary, especially from like public pressure of so many people who didn't get it. But I got it. And that's all that really matters. Absolutely. So tell us about the Intersectional Environment Resource Hub, how you got people involved, you know, where your head was at as far as, as the goals, because there's a million different ways to go about trying to make change happen and, and what really motivated you to, to do it in this way. Yeah, I think that education is often the first step to taking action. Um, And that's why I'm like always encouraging people to educate themselves, you know, because we want informed action, because sometimes we see types of allyship that's not informed and could be really hurtful. Um, So during the summer of 2020, when I started speaking about the Black Lives Matter movement and climate justice and intersectional theory, I started getting like thousands of people to my personal blog saying like, where are the resources, where are the resources, where are the resources? And early on, I wanted to create that sort of separation and those boundaries of creating a separate space that was also a collective to show people it's not just me. There's actually like hundreds, thousands of people who are doing this work throughout history. But let's point you to those people, those organizations, what you should be reading to kind of start your journey. So it really started off super grassroots with me and four other environmentalists that were just compiling resources because we had this momentum of going kind of viral online talking about intersectional environmentalism. And we wanted to just get people where they needed to be so they could start their journey because we wanted to show them, hey, it's so important to include diversity, equity, and inclusion into environmentalism. And it really did feel like the stakes were super high because we're in the midst of the racial awakening um, or whatever you want to call it for 
non-people of color. Um, so we have this moment, like, when again in history will hundreds of thousands of people suddenly be like, I want to learn about the intersections of climate and culture and identity and environmentalism. So we wanted to meet the demand. And we wanted to do it in a really accessible way that wasn't rooted in shame of like, hey, you don't know this, you're a bad person, but just making it as accessible as possible. So yeah, that's why we started that way, because we just really believe in accessible environmental information um, that also incorporates environmental justice and diversity. I mean, obviously, I think the pandemic has changed everyone. Did that change the way that you guys work? Has that shifted anything as far as your goals for the resource hub and things that you want to do? Yeah, I think something that we didn't anticipate was a lot of consulting and advising. And would you say when you are doing a lot of consulting for these businesses, I think a lot of times in my experience with Black and Fashion Council, when I'm talking to a company about the ways that they can be more invested in inclusivity and diversity to me, it's very simple. And often it feels like they view it as like, oh, we have to change literally everything. And how are we going to get over all these hurdles? How do you feel like the conversations are with brands that you're consulting with, like and, and letting them know that it doesn't have to be that hard? Like these are things that should everybody should do. Like this is the baseline of where we should be at. It is really interesting. I think people are afraid of being imperfect. And a lot of it has to do with communications like internally and externally they just don't know how to talk about diversity and equity and then also if you combine that with sustainability they're just like we don't know like what we don't want to get it wrong Um, because the stakes feel so high but I think we try to remind them that it's about accountability so that's why we designed our corporate accountability program because so many people were coming to us to get certified or something like that because they're familiar with fair trade certification and B Corporation so they wanted some sort of like stamp of approval And we told them, if you're committed to doing this work, you won't get a stamp of approval. You can say that you've taken this course if you'd like, but accountability is a journey, something that you're going to have to reassess every year. And you just have to bake these conversations into what you do. So I feel like that goes into a lot of our conversations. So they weren't one of our clients, but I feel like this was a really cool example of a nonprofit being accountable during the Black Lives Matter movement. Like the Sierra Club, they've been around for so long. They've got John Muir in their history, all of these kind of iconic, you know, white conservationists, etc. And for them to go through, I know that they went through kind of a racial justice training to then maybe like six or eight months later having a statement about John Muir and his work and how he displaced a ton of indigenous peoples and that they can hold space for um, his legacy while also not continuing to ignore the harm that he caused to indigenous peoples. I thought that that was really cool to see like a moment of accountability and transparency. And I think that'll be a good example for other companies or organizations that want to do this work. Like accountability is not the end of the world. Uncovering the things that went wrong and speaking about them transparently, people will respect you more typically. I agree. And I'm I'm curious also as you're working with, you know, consulting with a lot of these businesses, what do you feel like as a consumer outside of that, I feel like anytime I get on social media, there's some new brand that's like trying to sell me something that it, they, they care about equity so much. They care about the planet so much. I think it, as a consumer also can just be a bit confusing because it feels like we're just being sold so much nowadays. And I'm curious as a consumer and someone who talks to a lot of businesses, like how do you decipher, okay, I want to try this brand or I want to support this? Yeah, I think things are going to get 
a lot harder to suss out, like you said, because, you know, sustainability is on its way in. Ethical manufacturing is becoming the norm, I think. Hopefully, it might take some time. There's still a lot of fast fashion brands. I see a I see a Shein haul every day on TikTok. Every day. Every day. Every day. Every day. Um, but at least the awareness, I feel, for sustainable manufacturing is coming into the conversation, which is really exciting. Um, but it is hard to decipher but honestly, I blame the corporations more than I do the consumer. I want the consumer to just do the absolute best that they can because these corporations could completely change their supply chains if they wanted to and make it easier for all of us. But yeah, it really is hard to decipher. I think looking at a company's like impact report, if they offer one or if they say, oh, for every shoe you buy, we're going to plant a tree. Like, where are these trees? Like, are they being planted in a rainforest where there's already trees? Are they being planted in Detroit? So kind of getting into the nitty gritty of what are these programs? Who are they actually helping? Um, where is this recycled polyester coming from? So doing a deeper dive will usually tell you because if a company has good things to say, they will say it. And if they don't, they won't say it. Yeah, that's real. That's real. Let's talk about your book and your book tour. Um, what was the writing of the book like? What motivated you to feel like you obviously are, are leaning into a lot of academics, but what made you feel like you, you needed to publish something on your own? Yeah, I, selfishly, I think it's the book that I wanted when I was a young environmental science student, when I was going into my studies, because I feel like it took me years to kind of piece some of these things together that I was feeling. Like, I didn't know in the moment, like, oh, I'm not feeling connected to my environmental studies because we're not talking about, you know, the mother and father of environmental justice who are black folks, or we're not talking enough about environmental justice. It was like years later when I kind of pieced that together. So I just, I don't want other young environmental science students or emerging environmentalists of any age to have to go through that to kind of finally say, you know what, this is what I've been missing. I just want them to have it. How has the, the book tour been and just and just also just seeing reactions from people reading the book and, and talking to you about the book and what they've learned? It's really surreal. I don't know. It's it's really cool. It was an indie bestseller from bookshop.org, which I feel like was a big deal for me. That is a big deal. Yeah, I know it's not, you know, well, no, I'm not even going to. Don't even do that. It's a big deal. It's an indie bestseller. <laughs> <laughs> Support your local indie. Um, but, oh, my God, the book tour has been so cool. And I knew that I wanted it to be a grassroots book tour because, you know, I speak at corporations and things like that, you know, sometimes through consulting. Um, but I, I built a form so anyone could fill it out. And most of the people filling it out are student organizers. So I've just been bopping around to different colleges. And it just feels so good to see the look on their faces when they're like, oh, my God, like, this is my first event that I've organized. And they get all these students together. So it's just been so sweet. I love listening to them share their ideas and talk. And that's the best part of it. It's been really good. I'm tired for sure. But it's been really good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. So looking forward to to future things, I mean, this is a big question, but something that we're talking about a lot in the cut this month specifically, what do you want to see, you know, as far as intersectional environmentalism and the fashion and beauty industry? Um, I think it's something that I'm constantly trying to wrap my head around. What do you want to see change if you could change something tomorrow? Oh, I feel like there's so many directions I could take it, but honestly, refillable packaging 
just let's get on it. Like, let's get on it. Or finding really easy ways for the consumer. I think that's something that's going to make me excited in the beauty space because a lot of refillable packaging, people aren't refilling it. It's just like, oh, I really want this aluminum 10 because it's like cool. So I think in the beauty space, especially like, okay, like let's make it Let's, let's create some innovative systems where we can like capture the products or, you know, a shipping label so they can ship that waste back to you or something like that. I feel like that would be really cool. And the fashion space, more accessible pricing, I think, because some sustainable fashion, yes, it should be expensive because of the way that it's made. But not all of it has to be that expensive. So I think seeing some more reasonable price points, I think, would be great. I think that's also why so many, I mean, you can go on TikTok and there's so many young people of color who are doing Shein hauls because a top is $2. And if you don't have a lot of money and you want to participate in style, that is the easiest way. And so I I 100% agree with that and hoping for more of that. But it, it feels like takes a it takes a long time to get things done in fashion. And also this is something I struggle with, which is more of a fashion thing, but fashion for so many people is the way that they express themselves and I want people I want that to be accessible to all people. So like if there's a young black girl from the Midwest like me who's doing these hauls or getting all these this clothing because for her that's the easiest way for her to express herself and like stand out I want to have some nuance of like not shaming her but then also it makes me so mad at Sheen because it's like could you be selling even like a five dollar t-shirt that has organic like is there something here some sort of middle ground to allow people that freedom to find fashion and for that to be liberating and a way to express themselves but not to have this you know horrible impact on the planet it's a big question that i but i appreciate all of the answers because i know there's a million things that need to change (laughs) and also i was curious of you know you were talking about in and planting of trees and a lot of um nature initiatives what do you what do you want to see as far as nature and outdoor activities being more you know, accessible for POC communities and, and what do you want to challenge brands, you know, that want to say that they're sustainable, want to say that they care about equity and inclusivity actually do in that space? Yeah, I think something that I struggled with working in the outdoor industry, um, I remember they're like, well, we don't have any like black folks in our surfing ads because it's so hard to find. I'm like, first of all, I know Ebony Beach Club and Textured Waves. I know all these people I can put you in in contact with. Um, but I want people to take it one step further. Like, Why? are you not seeing a lot of black folks in these particular activities? And it's like, there are people there, but when we're talking about water in particular, like over 50% of African-Americans don't know how to swim and that's generational. There's trauma wrapped up in segregation and the slave trade and our relationship to water or even the wilderness and the great outdoors being scary and not a safe space for a lot of people of color. So I want people to take it one step further, especially like marketers that are like, well, why can't we doing the kind of historical and cultural analysis to see why that disconnect is there because it's usually rooted in generational trauma and then also funding programs that are trying to kind of reclaim the outdoors in a new way so outdoor afro or hike club that was started by a friend of mine or an org I think it's called tank proof where they're having like free swimming classes and primarily Latinx and black neighborhoods so I think corporations should start funding those sorts of initiatives that are helping people kind of reconnect to the outdoors. It's really important. And then also funding climate justice work in particular. I was looking at some data 
from the Solutions Project that less than 5% of all philanthropic funding in the environmental space goes to kind of climate justice work or work that's led by um, black and brown folks. So less than 5% goes to the work that is about protecting people and the planet. And the rest of it, you know, shout out to them, but goes to the big greens like WWF and PETA. They're working with budgets of over $200 million per year in their U.S. chapters. And this disconnect is jarring. So I think that corporations can practice wealth redistribution and these huge nonprofits that are focused on conservation should also participate in wealth redistribution. All of those suggestions are amazing. I hope people listen and take notes and reach out to you immediately. Me too. That would all be wonderful if people do that. <laughs> Lastly, I mean, what's next on the agenda for you and intersectional environmentalists and, and what are what are your plans? What are you excited about? Yeah, so we have a new program that might actually be dropping today. It's called Earth Sessions, and it's kind of an intimate concert series that we're doing to kind of partner with artists and poets and local nonprofits. So we have our pilot show in Brooklyn on April 21st, where we partnered with two um, Black-led food justice organizations and two local musicians. So it's kind of like people get tricked coming to a little show, and then they say, like, yeah. <laughs> An educational panel with the artists and the nonprofit leaders and just a really cool way to connect around joy and music and art, but also to learn about what's going on in their local community. So when people leave, they at least know two organizations that are doing the work um, down the street from the location we'll be at in Brooklyn. Um, so I'm really excited to experiment with how we can have these joyful moments through education, um, but also talk about, you know, inequality and the solutions that we can propose to that inequality. So yeah, that's what's next for us. That sounds like a lot of fun. Thank you. Earth Sessions, check it out. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was so great to talk with you and, and learn so much from you. Um, so in awe of all the work that you're doing. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. In Her Shoes is hosted by me, Lindsay Peoples. Our producer and editor is Kylie Holloway. Our engineer is Brandon McFarland, and our executive producer is Hannah Rosen. The Cut is made possible by the excellent team at New York Magazine. Subscribe today to support their work at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Lindsay Peoples, and thank you for listening.